I am Steve Becker. I have served Reno County, Kansas as district judge for 26 years. I followed that by serving in the Kansas legislature for six years. I'm Beth White. I served with parole for about almost a decade, and I'm currently a nursing student. And we have a special guest. Hi, I'm Sarah McKinnon. I am the chief public defender in Reno County, Kansas. I have been in criminal defense work for over 25 years now. And this is cleared. new bath hello dad how are you and good how are you how are my grandkids they're alive (laughs) (laughs) always important they're alive very alive all in all the activities yeah yep probably dirty if we're gonna be honest volleyball's been added volleyball ballet and then the youngest is an avid dirt eater Yes, he is. All right. <laughs> Go youngest. It's good to have hobbies. Yeah. Um, funny enough, I could say hello, dad, and hello, mom. Hello, daughter. How special is that? Yes. Hello, wife. <laughs> hello, husband. <laughs> this is crazy. Hello, Newman. <laughs> <laughs> Man, the family's here. Yes, we have... As she mentioned, Sarah McKinnon, Chief Public Defender, here to help us with our story today. And then our listeners maybe can understand why. Why we why are the way of, we are. <laughs> why we are so passionate about wrongful convictions. I mean. Oh, I was going to go a different direction, but yeah, no, that too. That too. Yeah. Put these three souls together and that's what you get. Yeah. The dream team. <laughs> Very much so. Very, very much so. Dad, do you have anything to report to us? Well, I, I don't have much other than we always start our episodes uh, by getting a number from the National Registry of Exonerations. Um, and today that number is 3,293 exonerations since 1989. And those exonerations total 29,100 years lost. Mom, you're shaking your head. We do woohoos for that number. We're glass half full people. Okay. Woohoo. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yes. Because of all the, uh, what, innocence projects out there and all the people that are working with inmates 
inmates, inmates serving time in prisons who claim their innocence and all those people working with those inmates. And they have had 3,293 successes. And hallelujah, people are finally listening to the wrongfully accused. Yes. Hallelujah. Well, yeah, hallelujah, they're listening to our podcast. Yes. (laughs) Well, this is kind of a caveat to that. I found myself scrolling TikTok. I don't know that either one of you know what that is, other than that's the apps I share to you, the videos I share to you, that you then in turn call me and ask how to watch those. Yes. Um, And I was watching one about a woman who was buying commissary for her husband who was wrongfully convicted or incarcerated for a crime he didn't commit. And I was scrolling through the comments and it had me very agitated about, and they were essentially, it was just, Oh, they're all in it. They're all innocent. And I mean, a whole sure. bunch of that. That's where you, that's where you go. Yeah. And I just want to put C cleared on Apple podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> well, he may not have done that crime, but certainly he did something. That's sarcasm for um, those of you that aren't familiar with my mother. <laughs> I'm fluid in it. Yes, very and, much so. And that's one of the great, one of several wonderful quotes you can get out of the Shawshank Redemption movie. Because they say that. When one inmate said, what are you in for? And they respond, don't you know, we're all innocent. <laughs> yep. I think that's the second podcast in a row you've quoted Shawshank Redemption. Really? Really. Okay. Either that or my lawyer screwed me. Yeah, that's in there too. And those of of you who have listened to this podcast know that that can be true sometimes. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. Yep. Okay, so are we going to talk about family? issues or are we going to talk about that's a whole conviction well I've that's got, a different date with I've a different issues. group of people i've got issues i want to discuss oh, the I'm... airing of the grievances <laughs> we we've all got issues okay. oh yeah we definitely don't have enough time and we definitely don't pay chris enough to listen let's, to that let's so. call this meeting to order okay okay what have we got today beth um well we, you, last week you talked about origin stories as far as where we get our case ideas from. And this individual's name came to me from Daryl Hunt, the last podcast we recorded, uh, in his research because of some research that our individual did. So it led me to her story, which then led me us to today talking about it. Um, it's different than anything we've done before, which we'll get into, so everybody... Uh, just keep an open mind about this story, and we'll talk about it. <laughs> yes, we will. Yes. Um, so today we're going to be covering Virginia Jenny Lefevre. Uh, the crime took place in 1988 in Ohio. Virginia was going through a very tumultuous, very um, bad divorce with her husband, William, and they had been for some some time. The divorce was actually almost going to be finalized, just six days until the divorce was finalized. Virginia was a nurse and William and her were estranged. Uh, Virginia had been issued a full custody order for the children. They had children together. So she had full custody and she was in the final preparations 
for moving across country to California to start a new job. So that's kind of where she's sitting. Um, She also had a restraining order against William, her estranged husband. And maybe you can help me with this. They have a family home where Virginia stays with the children. And William was granted some sort of visitation with the kids at the family home. So he went to the family home for dinner to see the kids. So I would have to assume for that restraining order, Virginia wasn't present for this. So he's having dinner with the kids. Um, He ends up staying the night. And he starts acting very peculiar. Uh, William had a history of substance abuse. And it's documented that he was acting in a manner in which he had previously when he was under the influence of illegal drugs. He was walking around the house naked and acting like he was hallucinating. So that's kind of strange. Um, He ended up falling asleep and Virginia came. Or passing out. Or passing out. Very accurate. Um, He ended up, well, Virginia, I guess, came the next day. I'm really unclear on how all that works with the restraining order because my knowledge of a restraining order is you have to be away from each other at all times. Well, it wouldn't be uncommon. Uh, and obviously it would be best for the children not to be moved from household to household. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that doesn't strike me as strange. Um, so you and, think they could have possibly been staying at the house at the same time? No. Okay. I suspect that she left when he was exercising his visitation. When he showed up and then she, he was supposed to leave when she got there. Yes. Okay. So she shows up the next morning. She finds a bottle of her antidepressants. I have the name here, but that's not important, and I probably mispronounce it anyways. Um, She finds a bottle of her antidepressants, which she believed to have 20 pills in when last time she checked, and there's only half a tablet in there. Um, So she goes to check on William. He's kind of incoherent and acting strange. So according to her kids, well, actually... We'll get to that here in a second. We're just going to tell Virginia's side of the story. So she's, he's acting strange. She calls um, for a paramedic. The paramedics come. They take him to the hospital. Um, he's admitted for um, an overdose of the antidepressant medication. He stays overnight. He goes through bouts of being um, lucid, very coherent, and then very, very combative. So he's just kind of all over the place. Overnight, uh, he becomes more combative. And at one point, he tells a nurse that he did take his wife's antidepressant medication, and he did so because he wanted to commit suicide. He did so in an effort to kill himself. And then later that same day, he went to cardiopulmonary arrest and died. So the following day, he died. Um, The coroner was alerted to the situation because the uh, admitting nurse talked to the coroner about what was going on, and he told her that if it was deemed an overdose death, that they would be involved. And so to let him know if if he ended up dying, because his office would be involved. So the nurse did so, and they took a look at his body and performed an autopsy. And the coroner determined that there was too much bruising and... um, issues with his body to be ruled a normal suicide. Yeah, the cor- the way I read it, the coroner observed bruising all over his body. Yeah. Yes. Um, and at that point, they got the detectives involved and relayed this information to the detective. The detective went to nursing staff, and one of the nursing staff said one of the nurses said yes he said that he took the antidepressants in an effort to kill himself 
And then another nurse told him that at one point, William told the nurse that Virginia, the wife, was force-feeding him the antidepressants, and that when he would pass out, she would physically punch and beat him while he was passed out. So obviously, there's issues there. They end up calling Virginia in for uh, a statement at this point, and she's told them that she got, excuse me, she told them about his strange behavior the night before, according to the kids, and that she came home, found her pill bottle, and called um, Elio or paramedics to come get him because she suspected he was overdosing on the antidepressants, and she believed it to be a suicide by overdose. So they take her statement and they continue doing um, more investigation. They start talking to their children. One of the children tell law enforcement that dad, William, was sleeping in a room and Virginia came home and lit a, dad, you're going to have to help me. What was the name of it? Smokums. 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 Pesticide rodent fumigation device, put it in the room which William was sleeping and then took the children and the family cat and left. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I find that that hilarious that she lights a smoke in the bedroom and then says, kids, why don't we go shopping? (laughs) And, oh, by the way, let's take... Take the cat. Let's take the family cat. Oh my gosh! I just think that's so. There's lots of funny. there's I lots mean, of weird parts to this story. That's the first one. That that's definitely the first one. Well, so, except beating your husband when he's passed out. Yeah, and force that's feeding weird. force feeding him yeah. antidepressants. But, but this is pretty good. I well, surely to... surely law enforcement checked her hands to make sure there wasn't any. You bruising know, there or... wasn't any kind of report on that. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so obviously they have lots of suspicions. They ask Virginia, can we perform a search at your house? Now, this is weird, too, because a court... <laughs> Dad, I'm sorry, I'm laughing already. Well, because I've never heard of anything like this, and this is just the strangest thing, but she agreed for them to come search her house as long as they didn't search her kitchen trash. That's how the search warrant i don't think it was a warrant at that that's how the search was agreed upon they could search anywhere in the house just please don't look in the kitchen trash like sarah have is you, that a thing have you ever heard of that uh no i have not and i would say it's bad research or there's has to be wrong or this is the national Enquirer, or something weird just about how weird some of these details are only all of these came out of a, a civil sort a civil lawsuit court document um so they're factually under oath, accurate. Was the consent to search, the limited consent to search? Everything but the kitchen trash can. Was that on body cam video? Oh, I have no idea. Was, That's not in any of the research. Was no. it a written consent? Can you tell what she does for a living? Except the trash can? Yes. Let me, uh, there's, I have the exact wording that was in the court document. Okay, that's like, I equate that to, what we see most often is law enforcement making a traffic stop, and then after the traffic stops over, he asks, may I search your vehicle? And the driver says, 
Sure, but don't look in the console. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the wording in the the wording in the court document with this: the search was conditioned upon police not searching her kitchen trash. That's amazing. That's hilarious. I mean, I guess they'll take what they can get as far as searching. Well, goes. and then well, so they go and search the house. They find nothing. They come back the next day with a warrant for the kitchen trash. Yes, they get a warrant and search the. Which trash. also doesn't make sense to me because it's my understanding she was not in police custody, so she went home that night, and if there was something in the kitchen trash that she thought she needed to conceal and didn't want the police to search, you think she would remove said things. Well, what shocks me is law enforcement came back the next day with a yeah. search warrant because they can get those with the... Well, you think just well, her yes. saying, of a dime. Wasn't her just saying, yeah, you could search my house, but not the trash can search do enough warrant. for a search warrant? I well, it depends on... What I think happened is they searched the house on her consent and found things that would support getting a warrant. Well, that also wasn't in the research, so that's we could speculate that, yes. And tell our listeners what they found in the trash can. So the following day, they got the search warrant. They came back. They looked in the uh, kitchen trash. They found hypodermic needles, multiple syringes, poisoned peanuts, poisoned sunflower seeds for killing rodents, and charred material. Uh, it was later determined that the charred material was that smokum fumigation product. Smokum. Um, and they also had some sort of evidence that the day prior that Virginia had went to a hardware store and bought the smokum. So... And of course, they sent everything off to the crime lab for DNA and fingerprints. Again... Wonderful questions, but not in the research. You would think so, yes. But we've got a lot of incriminating evidence. Yes. At this at this point. Yes. Um, and then I, I think I've mentioned, but she was a nurse, so the idea is if she has the syringes and the hypodermic needles, she would have been able to give an injection if need be. So, um, and also another thing to point out, I know I mentioned this. And it's not denied by any party that William did have a history of substance abuse. So he does have a history of using illegal drugs. So that's in his background, too. So Oh, you're he, assuming that could include intravenous drugs. Well, I if he's there the night before that night and he's acting as though he were on some sort of illegal drugs, hallucinating, walking around the house naked with his children, it would me, lead me, parole officer brain to think yes he's on some sort of illicit drug good well, cat, good catch I and didn't it just get so it. happens that my daughter is a nursing student so please tell your listening audience how hard is it for an untrained person to um, put a hypodermic needle in their body honestly somebody who is an active user would probably be much more sufficient at putting in a needle than i would at this point so yes it doesn't just take somebody that's been trained how to do that to, obviously yes or trained Traditionally, I guess I should say Medical that way. Training. Medical training, yes. Street training. Yes. Um, so then another witness comes forward, and I believe it is a friend of Virginia's. They list her name. I, don't, I won't mention I don't think it's necessarily too important. But apparently two days prior, she called her friend and asked if she Virginia knew Virginia did. Virginia called her friend. And keep in mind, this is a very, very heated, very bad divorce. Um, and she called her friend asking if she knew something that would off some off someone, air quotes, for money and a bus ticket. She later called back later that day saying she was just joking and 
um, William had a $20,000 life insurance policy. And in six days, keep in mind, it's six days till the divorce is final. Um, she would no longer be the beneficiary on that. But she was, she was just joking. She told the friend. Which honestly, I have been around enough people that are going through that process and being divorced. I mean, it it's a it can be a very rough time period, and I've I've known people that joke around about stuff. I would be shocked to learn if somebody going through an acrimonious divorce didn't say that. Yeah, I'm I'm just saying, like as far as saying stuff like that goes, I don't. That to me doesn't hold a whole bunch of credit, especially if she's talking to her friends. What makes it so? bad is the chain of events that happened afterwards yeah within 48 hours yeah he's, he's deceased is gone yeah exactly yeah um so the county in which they live does not have an active toxicology department so they're having to ship it off i believe to franklin county to do the toxicology and they finished the autopsy. Um, he died from an overdose of the antidepressants. What else was in his system? Well, hold your little horses okay. here. Oh, as far as other illicit drugs, yes. they, nothing ever is mentioned. That, that's strange to me, too. There's nothing mentioned about any kind of illicit drugs other than the antidepressants. And the night that he was... Yes, where he was acting strange and hallucinating was and the night naked. Be- night before he died. Yes. And, so, I- and if, well, and I guess I don't know, when we would do drug tests for parole, they were typically urine. And it was, it was a 48-hour threshold for the major drugs like cocaine and methamphetamines. If you didn't test within that time frame, you weren't going to get an accurate reading on if they had consumed them or not. Whereas, I don't know, I'm sure blood probably holds on to it longer. And blood I'm sure... Is- Blood, hair follicles are yeah. far more accurate. Yeah. yeah. So, but in this case, it wasn't 48 hours or longer. It was like 24 hours. Well, he would have been admitted and then he died the following day That's and then true. they did the autopsy. But I'm sure his t- body, t- and honestly, a lot of it's metabolized through the liver, so I'm sure they could have took sample. That's all above my pay grade. But I'm sure they could have found out if he had used illicit drugs in the relatively near future, or not future, past. Okay, so they do all of that. They ship him back to his county. The body is still being held um, by the district attorney. They haven't released it. And they issue a death certificate two weeks later where his cause of death is still undetermined. They're continuing to review the case. And six weeks post-mortem, they decide that the method in which, if it if it happened the way Virginia said, where he consumed 20 of 20, well, 19 and a half of these antidepressant pills, he would have died much quicker, opposed to have lasting for, what, 36 hours? What, whatever the time frame is, he would have died much quicker if he would have took the amount of pills that Virginia said he did. And so they believed that he was um, given medication via... Um, I am intramuscular medic. Someone gave him a shot of the antidepressants. That's their theory. That's why it prolonged it. That's why the half-life was so long and he wasn't deceased until 36 hours later. So the toxicologist requests that the morgue look for possible injection sites. Now, this is, again, where I have questions and I don't have answers for you. But I would think six weeks post-mortem is where we're at. I would think that would be pretty hard to determine an injection site six weeks post-mortem. Because you would think that, well, and I guess I guess I assume that. I guess their, their body's preserved at this point still, too. 
But anyways, they request that they look for possible injection sites, muscular injection sites where he could have been given some sort of medication. And um, the coroner gets a magnifying glass, examines the whole body and finds a place on the left buttocks where they believe it could have been an injection site. They um, take a biopsy of the site and send it off for toxicology reports. I just thought of something while you were explaining these facts that um, we experience, you know, when we get injections or when we have blood drawn, uh, the site heals within a matter of a few yeah. days. Yeah. But here we're dealing with an individual that became a corpse within 48 hours. Well, it depends when he would have been issued a shot. And the whole healing process would stop. Yes. Yeah. There wouldn't be any more change. Well, I can I can definitely say I've been um, given like a flu shot or something of that nature, and I can't even see it immediately after, let alone two days later. You could feel the tender. I, so I don't know. That's that's just an interesting fact for everybody to ponder. If That sounds I, sketchy to me. Well, they did take the biopsy of the site. Um, so the toxicology comes back, and the injection site that they found on the left buttocks, um, they actually had really high levels of the antidepressant present in that tissue, which essentially said to them that, yes, in fact, he was injected with that medication. Um, they also said that rectally they believed he was issued the antidepressant medication too because they found high levels of it present in his colon. So there's that. Uh, they also had another screen come back which showed his tissue was present for the pesticides found in the smokums, whatever that was. They found that chemical present in his body too, which leads credence to the fact that maybe in fact the story the children told of the mom putting the smokums in the room with him sleeping could have been accurate. So they have all of that information. The district attorney presented that to the grand jury, and Virginia was indicted on November 30th, 1988 for aggravated murder. One more thing about the cause of death. It was, I know at one point when I was reading about the case, it was two months post-mortem, and they had still not declared the cause of, cause death. of death. Yeah. So... Yeah, I I see that as a problem when it takes when it takes that long. They just said at this point, two months post mortem, they hadn't determined cause of death yet. They never really said when they did it. Well, determine, and I but the cause of death was an overdose of antidepressants. Yeah, and I kind of took that to mean that maybe for whatever reason, during that time frame, that span of years, that county did not have a toxicology department, so they had to ship it off to a different county, and that created some of the delay too. So, but I could be completely off base with that. So the trial starts. Um, Virginia opted for a trial by judge instead of a trial by jury. What are your thoughts on that? Can you explain why you would do that? Can you explain that that's even an option for people? I can't. There's only a few... Um circumstances that I would advise my client to opt for. Well, and let's start off by explaining what it is. The jury the jury is the judge of the facts. A trial by judge is just the judge determining guilt yes. or innocence, where a trial by jury is a jury of your peers, what we commonly think of 
12 individuals, two alternates deciding the fate of an individual. So Virginia opted for just the judge instead of 12 of her peers to determine. She waived her right to a jury yes. trial. That okay. makes so. no sense to me whatsoever. Um, in a jury trial, we, we seat 12 people. They hear the facts, and the facts as they determine them, they are given a set of, of legal instructions that, incl- that contain the law to be applied to the facts that they just heard, and it's from there that they make their decisions and make their verdicts. Um, the only situation that I could even conceive of where, where you would want to waive a jury and try your case to the judge, for instance, if I filed pretrial motions, a motion to suppress, statements or a motion and that's to sp- something that's done obviously before you go to trial yes that's just something you the attorneys hand over to the judge yes yes okay so if the court rules against me and rules well your confession's coming in even though it was co- coerced uh the um, evidence is coming in even though law enforcement violated your fourth amendment rights those are caveats um then there's really no reason to have a jury trial because the guy's going to get or the gal is going to get convicted and your next hope of of relief is up at the appeals court. So So at that point, you're already thinking appeals. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just... Dad, what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, that's true. It is very... um, There are circumstances where it's done. I was about to say it's very rare. But no, in in some cases... Um, some cases it's done, um, but you know, with the jury, I think, <clears throat> I hope Sarah will agree with me. The state has the burden of proving a defendant guilty and that burden requires them to do it beyond a reasonable doubt. If you try a case to a jury if you get one person who has a reasonable doubt, that's good. Yeah. Yes. You don't get a verdict. I mean, your client isn't freed. It's a hung jury, and they do it all over again. But that's the, that's the goal, avoid a conviction. And uh, if you try it to the court, a court's perception of beyond reasonable doubt is likely to be much narrower than a citizen. You know, just somebody who, a blue-collar worker or an accountant a or anything person. like that, yes, I mean, their perception of a reasonable doubt would likely be wider so yeah. Well, and additionally, I don't, I don't think it's uncommon in this country for um, judges to come from prosecution offices. It's not uncommon here. No, it's. I don't think in it's Reno un- County, Kansas. I don't think it's uncommon anywhere. And the fact that you've been a career prosecutor and now are on the bench may also um, taint, conflict. Yeah with the, the wide deference that guilt beyond a reasonable doubt requires. Well, and Dad, you said something just now that I think we should point out. It's you're innocent until proven guilty. Unless. Unless proven guilty. You are innocent unless you are proven guilty. 
Um, I think that's just an important statement to make right it here is. because I've had people tell me the reverse that look at me. Well, no, you're guilty until proven unless proven innocent. And they legitimately thought that's how it went. It's like, no, that's, that's that, not that's a, that's a sad statement because that is the bedrock of our criminal justice system. Always has been, always will be. That's what separates us from all the other countries. Yeah. And that also people, and you would think, yeah, that's good, that's good, that's good. And then, but the result of that requirement, that burden, prove um, beyond a reasonable doubt, guilt must be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Oftentimes, a defendant, well, maybe almost always, a defendant is acquitted because the state did not reach that burden. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That doesn't, that does not equate to actual innocence. The defendant didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. The, but that's how, as Sarah has says, that's so important that the state must reach this high burden because we so want to guard against wrongfully wrongful convictions. convictions. And you know, as, as technology has progressed, how law enforcement techniques have progressed, um, that's not unreasonable for us to require the government to prove that. They should be able to do that. We should demand that they be able to do that. And we do. They well, have the best technology. They have uh, the best investigators. They should be able to prove that. Yeah, and one thing I'll point out in my experience on the bench, it becomes very clear during a trial the resources that the state has available to them compared to the resources the defendant has available to him or It's her. unlimited. Well, and that should correlate with how the state has an obligation to surrender all of their evidence to the defense, right? Because right. we run into that so many times with Brady violations where the state doesn't turn over all of their evidence because they have more resources to do the investigation opposed to even like a public defender or just some attorney that you hire off the street. They don't, they're not having all day, every day, they don't have investigators specifically working on that case. They don't have the sheriff's office, all the law enforcement officers. They don't have those resources at their act. And, and let's be clear. It's not just an obligation. It is the flipping law. And I would suggest it goes beyond that. If the state has evidence, that help, would help show the defendant did not do it. Exculpatory, correct? Yep. It is. Yes. And they conceal it, and they keep it hidden, and they don't share it with anything. That's not only a Brady violation. That's just ethically, ethically wrong. Yeah. But and I'm what not talking about counselor lawyer ethics i'm talking about society Morality. ethics well let's 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 look what happens when a prosecutor 
doesn't do what is ethically, we've, legally, we've ran morally. Into that more many times about um, what on the cases. The, we there's no repercussions. There's none. Yes, absolutely none. And why is that? We have a absolute shrug. immunity. We have shrugs from everybody that can't see us, obviously. So yes, very good point. Um, that goes along to what you were saying, Mom, how the state has all the resources, they have all the technology, they can do all of the tests, which goes towards what you were saying earlier. Was the needles fingerprinted? Were there's their DNA on the needles? Was there any of that? None of that was presented as evidence at trial, to my knowledge. So we get to trial for Virginia. The prosecution presented the expert witness testimony from the toxicologist, James Ferguson. He's the one that did all the toxicology from the other county, from Franklin County. And he testified that only an injection of the medication would explain the overdose for William. And that he he also testified he believed William was poisoned. And do tell, Beth, what were his qualifications? We'll get to that. You're jumping the gun here. So that was the evidence presented. Um... It was also argued that Virginia was an RN. She was familiar with injections. Um, She gave the injection to her husband because he wasn't dying fast enough after taking the medication. Then she shut him in the room with the pesticide fumigant. So that's the prosecution's story as to why, how, not why, because I'll get to that in a second, why Virginia did it. In February of 1990, the judge convicted Virginia of aggravated murder and sentenced her to life in prison. I'm shocked. Yeah. So I'm going to get into a little bit of post and then we'll bring up all the wonderful points you're talking about, mom. Um, Just a few years later, the toxicologist Ferguson wrote a book slash screenplay about the trial, portraying himself as a hero who saved the day in William's um, murders. He was the one that, to be able to prove Virginia's guilt. She was that's the another, Avenger. That's another thing. We have all these weird things in this yeah, case, and I'm thinking weird. about, God, somebody ought to write. <laughs> yeah, somebody toxic- ought to write a screenplay. Funny enough, the toxicologist. The did. toxicologist, the primary wit- witness for the state. So not only did he do that, he was very good at writing fiction. Uh, 2010, so now we jump forward 20 years. Yeah, we're 20-year jump. 20-year jump for Virginia. She's been incarcerated this entire time, estranged from her kids. Um, Both of her parents are deceased at this point. Uh, I think there's maybe one. Her son is still talking to her. She has completely lost all contact with her other children. Virginia's attorney discovered that... Playwright, playwright slash author toxicologist James hero. Ferguson, hero, hero, hero of his story, had lied about his credentials in her trial and other unrelated proceedings. Ferguson pled no contest to falsifying falsification of charges and was convicted of lying under oath. So he lied about being the toxicologist expert that he was, and he lied under oath and he falsified charges. So due to this information, Virginia's attorney filed an appeal with this, actually, interesting enough, the same trial court judge who convicted her, um, and the trial court judge vacated her convention, conviction, and she was released. Good for the judge. So she's released. She re- she's been in, counting the time that she was in pretrial, she's been in almost 22 years at this point. She reports for the first several days she didn't sleep at all. Like three days, she didn't sleep at all because the bed was too soft. She didn't know what to do with herself. 
Um, like we talked about, her parents had already passed away. All of her physical belongings fit in a tote that fit in the back of a car. Um, she describes it as everything was too big, too fast, too loud, too bright, and too overwhelming, which I think is very accurate. I complain about all those things <laughs> sometimes, do. too. You do. So that happened in 2010. So then the district attorney's office has the burden to refile the charges against her. On April 21st, 2011, the prosecution dismissed charges without prejudice. So do you want to talk about with prejudice and without prejudice? With prejudice means that you, state, may never file these charges again. So they can never come back and try and charge them for the same crime. Yes. The case is over. Done with. The case Dunzo. ends. Stick yes. a fork in it. Yes. They're- now, without prejudice. Which means they can be refiled at any time. Um only limited by statute limitations and generally... Which there, murder, there is none, There correct? is none. Okay. Yeah, I, and it's interesting. A dismissal, um, my experience, is that a dismissal by the court with prejudice is somewhat rare. Very. They don't do that very often. A judge won't do that very often. I had... I had an example where um, a defendant was charged with a DUI. He lived in Colorado. He had a, his defense attorney was in Wichita, and I set the DUI for trial, and the state shows up and has to have a continuance. So I do that, and then the whole circumstance happens again. I do, I continue it at the state's request. And at the third, I think this is the way it happened, at the third request for a continuance, I said no and dismissed the case without prejudice. (gasps) They immediately refiled it. And so I immediately set it for trial again, and we did it again. The state never appeared ready to go to trial. I got so angry, Beth. Type A dad, I could see that happening. <laughs> I got so angry at the state, so I dismissed it. And then the defense attorney, I can remember the def- defense attorney arguing. My client has come from Colorado to this courtroom seven times ready to go to trial. I am from Wichita. I come to Hutchinson seven times, and I'm prepared for trial. My fees are not small. Yeah. And, yeah, I could see how the delay had prejudiced the defendant. So I dismiss it with prejudice. As uh, Sarah says, that does not happen very often. And when I did that, that uh, that's a ruling that the state can appeal. If you dismiss it without prejudice, they can. Nobody can appeal that because the case is still pending. So let me let me ask you this. I want I okay, got to get this going. in. Do I got to get this in. Do you remember? It, were you affirmed on that? I went to the appellate courts, and it was one of my rare times I was affirmed. Which Woo-hoo. means they agreed with you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> they agreed with me. Okay, so let let answer me this. What is if they're going to leave it 
dismiss it without prejudice? Why don't they just leave it as an active case? Because they don't want that on their numbers? It doesn't look good publicly. They don't want to admit they've made a mistake. And this causes a great deal of uncertainty and trauma to the accused. Okay. How about those three reasons? Yeah, I just, I have a hard time believing they're concerned about the trauma caused to the accused. No, I'm saying maybe they want to that's why cause. The, oh, okay. That's why the okay. state wants to okay, keep I got it you, I got you. And they save face. They don't, they don't have to say, hey, you know what, guys, we screwed up. Sorry. Because the public doesn't like to hear that from elected officials. Um, so, yeah. Well, rightfully so. Yes. I don't want to hear that my district attorney is wrongfully prosecuting people. Yeah, that would concern me, too. Okay, so let's talk about the issues with the case, and then I'll get to where Virginia is currently. Um, obviously, there's some questionable facts for this. I Like I said, I originally found her story based on um, Daryl Hunt's research, which I'll get into here in a little bit. And I thought it was really interesting because she's a nurse. We don't really cover that many female um, exonerees. And when we do, a lot of times they deal with um, child or infant loss, which is hard for me as a mother. So I thought it would be a good story for us to cover. And the more I researched, the more I was like, oh, these are not good facts. <laughs> I don't like these facts. I remember I even called dad today. I'm like, can we just not talk about those facts? You know, about where like. And see, I disagree. I disagree. Well, and I think it's important to note, too, and Mom, you and I had a conversation about this. Dad and I had a conversation about this. The prosecution was so eager to prosecute her that they didn't do any research on their chief toxicologist. I mean, you would think they would verify or fact check his credentials, especially if he's testifying in multiple cases for them. If this toxicologist has been called as a state witness I guarantee you that every defense attorney that has him on the stand is going to know everything about his pedigree. Yeah. Everything. It's not the prosecution that didn't do the research. It's the The defense, defense attorney didn't do the research because I assure you that toxicologist took the stand and the prosecutor had to qualify him as an expert. And one of the things he asked him is how many times have you been qualified by a court as an expert? And he's going to say 20, 25. Well, in the court proceedings I've been a part of, too, for people who aren't familiar with the process, typically the questioning starts with the expert witnesses. What's your name? What's your schooling? What training have you had? Correct, right? This is part of them qualifying it. So they're testifying on, I've been to X school. I've done X amount of training. I'm specialized in this. I've been involved in X cases. So you would think he would have mentioned all of that on the stand too, which could have been why he was convicted of lying under oath. Did your research reveal the lie? No. Mine did. Ooh, look at you. This whole thing was reversed because of the toxicologist lied. What he lied about was the year of graduation. Are you serious? He advanced, he put the graduation back like seven years, eight years, so it would show he had much more experience oh, than okay. he did. Oh, okay, okay. 
So but like instead of it. me saying I am a nurse and I graduated in 2023, I'd say like I'm a nurse and I graduated in 03. So you have an expert it's witness. It's got nothing to do with toxicology. Really? You have an expert witness that will lie on his resume to make his ego feel better about himself. Not right. only that, but that he gives... He will lie about anything. He, he, he is an egomaniac. He will lie about anything. There is no finding that he lied about anything other than the date of graduation. Okay, so prove there, it. There was no jury present, obviously. But if I were sitting in a jury and someone were to say, I have been a toxicologist for 15 years versus I have been a toxicologist for two years, I would give more credibility to the 15 years than the two. You think? And I guess I shouldn't say it like that because you said seven years. So seven versus 14, I would still give more credibility to a 14-year-old, 14-year toxicologist. He sounds like a narcissist to me. That, that's a weird, that's weird. The court set aside the conviction, dismissed the case with prejudice because the toxicologist lied as to when he graduated. Because, because they could prove the toxicologist lied about the yes. year he graduated. Yeah, that's right. And I tend, I tend to agree. If you're going to lie about something like that, I tend to believe that would call into question any amount of work that you would do. That is classic narcissist behavior. Classic. Okay. I'm, and I, if I will yes. testify under oath that I am better than what I actually am, he'll lie about anything. She doesn't mince words. The state... The state employed him. The state called him as a witness. It was the state's duty, not duty, lawful obligation to present guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and they did it by presenting a liar. And okay. The date of the toxicology has no bearing on guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, well, let's get to this. Credibility of witnesses okay. do. We're not going to grant this. Let's get to this. <laughs> What's her motive? What's Virginia's motive? What's Virginia's motive? She's already been given full custody. She's already been granted access to move her and the children across the country to California. She's not getting life insurance. She's not getting the life insurance policy because as she went in there and said, it was a suicide. You don't get a payout on a suicide for life insurance. She's shutting the door to child support payments. So what, what's in it for her? Well, and we he was just, I'll tell you, he was the son of a She's going to be living across the country from him. Here's the problem I have with the state's theory of the case. We have to totally overlook, ignore, disregard a statement from the victim's own mouth. That's another thing, because he initially said that he, he, well, both times he said he took the pills because he wanted to kill himself. The second time he added that he was being force-fed the medication. You have to remember, at this point, he is going out of being lucid to combative to coherent like he is phasing all through these phases just constantly and the longer he progressed on this overdose the more combative he became yeah. so who's who's to say what right mind he was if he was even in a right mind when he made those statements okay so he so the state says he was in the right mind when he said she she forced them into me he was not in the right mind when he said i was trying to commit suicide that's what we have to believe yeah there i mean there's a lot what, however you fall on her guilt or innocence, if I'm in a jury, I would have reasonable doubt, 100%. I could say that. I could say of everything we've done, because we've covered so many just egregious cases of, of 
horrific things happening to our exonerees that I don't necessarily feel the same about Virginia. But I would say if I was sitting in a jury, I would find reasonable doubt there. It's not about her moral guilt or her moral innocence. The state is charged with bringing criminal charges against somebody and they must prove it beyond a reasonable Reasonable doubt. doubt. And what was the verdict? Guilty. So they did. By judge. Yeah, they proved it. And who's they, to say the seven years didn't influence the judge? Or who's to say that ineffective counsel wasn't present? But that, that verdict, when we look at the case, pretty much the only thing they had was the toxicologist. Absolutely. Saying well, then, that that type of death is not consistent with taking oral and how, which, how about this? They went two months without charges being filed. Don't you think there was some pressure to do something? Man, we got to do something. We got to clear this case. But what was the toxicologist's name? Ferguson. We'll just, we'll just bring Fergie in. Fergie, the cleanup guy. Stranger things have happened, folks. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. The more I read about this case, the more I'm like, eh. But truly, it just, it goes to show like what you're saying the pressure to pursue prosecution and how things get overlooked. And for me personally, um, I don't know that I would have, I would have definitely found reasonable doubt for Virginia. Um, Beside the point, she was released and exonerated Uh, in 2011. She lost 22 years. Uh, She and her son both filed civil lawsuits against the state. Her son filed a lawsuit for being wrongfully separated from his mom and unlawfully seized and taken into custody by child services. Um, Initially, her civil lawsuit seeking compensation from the state was dismissed. There was legislative changes um, several years afterwards where initially their compensation statute read that you need to be dismissed with prejudice in order to qualify for the compensation program. Several years later, that changed for that. Those wording with prejudice was taken out and it just needed to be dismissed. So she did end up getting compensation for her 22 years lost. Uh, Ohio law offers $52,000 per year of wrongful incarceration. Um, this is kind of where it really interested me. Virginia ends up going to, she must have had an associate's degree in nursing. She ends up going and studying and gets a bachelor's degree in nursing from Ohio State University. She then goes to get her master's degree in nursing from South University. And at that point, she presents or completes a research project to investigate the incidence of PTSD among exonerees, including other physical health ailments that are attributed to the stress and anxiety regarding wrongful incarceration. And her work, her study was cited with Daryl Hunt. So that's where the correlation between the two, and that's what popped up my interest for that, is the very high prevalence of PTSD in wrongfully convicted individuals. And that's what, that's why I now view Virginia in a very favorable light. Yes because of the research she has done on the effects of wrongful convictions. Yeah. She states that she very much suffered from PTSD and just recently started going to a therapist to get help for it. And that's what prompted her to do the research. Um, I think it's also interesting because she's talking more about, or not just about like being separated from your family and losing everything you have and just the isolation of wrongful conviction 
but also what the toll of all of those things do to your physical body. Because she studied how the prevalence of diabetes and um, hypertension and all sorts of things, how prevalent they were. And I thought that was kind of interesting too, because that's not something you think about the damage done to your physical body for being incarcerated. So, yeah. Good for her. Yeah. She- She's also on a, uh, oh, this one organization uh, provides speakers who speak to the issue of wrongful convictions. Yeah. And she is on that speaker's panel. She, uh, yeah, and that gives her the opportunity to go to various organizations and make presentations uh, educating people like we're trying to do about the frequent wrongful convictions and uh, the consequences of them. And it's also, according to the research, she's still actively working as a nurse. So I think that I give a lot of credence to her because that's not an easy field to be in, especially right now. So Good ending. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a good ending, a lot better than Daryl Hunt. Yeah, I didn't like that ending either. I didn't either. Um, like I said, there's a whole bunch of weird stuff. Some of this stuff, I swear, I was, I felt like I was having a fever dream reading some of the facts of this just because it was so strange. Um, but ultimately, she was able to be released, and I think she's done very meaningful work since her release. That sounds like it. Yeah. All right. Do you have anything in closing, Sarah Sweet? I do not. Stephen Royce? I want to say thank you to the studio that we are allowed to use to record these. And, of course, our producer, Christopher, who makes us, uh, does his best to make us sound professional. Yes. Sometimes we give him quite the task. Yes, we do. (laughs) If you want to reach us, you can find us on Cleared Podcast on Facebook or Cleared Pod on Instagram. Any questions, comments, concerns, we would love to hear from you. And until next time, thank you. Thank you for listening. Assault City Sound Production.